Colangeli dego mi komet gavazesi, sa kolier. Mi komet gazlen, kouls Toulouse opa kouls Toulouse igoitesos dimito. Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. Episode 100. Woo! <laughs> I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. Over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. And we have a, um, a special guest coming to us from British Columbia in Canada is uh, Christine Schreier. Schreier. Schreier, yes. <laughs> Ah, why did I get that name? I I got that I spelled the name wrong several times. It's I just, because uh, you have volapük on the brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> volapük. Mm-hmm. Volapük. Um, possibly, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I will not. I will not confirm or deny whether I've learned any volapük. No, I haven't learned anything. <laughs> but um, so Christine is a well. Let's just uh, start in. Christine, you are, you are a, uh, researcher at, uh, what is the, what is the university? I am so unprofessional today. Uh, university. UBC? Yes, so University of British Columbia, Columbia right? Uh, uh yeah. And, and then I am the Okanagan yeah. campus. Yeah. yeah. Which campus, sorry? Okanagan. So in the interior of British Columbia. The okay. main UBC campus is in Vancouver, which hmm. is on the coast, and I'm at the Okanagan campus. Ah, okay. All right. And, uh, so, you work on language revitalization, but, and you've also done research on, uh, the Natvi community as well. So work research on Conlang communities as well. And you created Kryptonian for, for the, uh, Man of Steel movie, right? That's right. Okay. Can you, so I guess I already summarized a few things. Can you sort of give us a little bit Expand a little bit on your own background in linguistics and in, in conlanging to the extent that you've done it. The, so for our sure. listeners, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, I'm a professor of linguistic anthropology, an assistant professor. I yes. don't have tenure yet. <laughs> um, but I teach classes in linguistic anthropology and some of those are more anthropological. So things like pigeons, creoles, and created languages. Um, and other ones are more hardcore linguistic. So phonology, morphology, syntax, and semantics. Um, and I also teach an introductory course called the Introduction to Linguistic Anthropology. Anthropology has four fields. I, I assume most of your listeners are more linguistics-based rather than anthropology-based. So we do have four subfields to anthropology, one of them being linguistic anthropology. And so students take courses in all of our main four fields, archaeology, cultural anthropology, and biological anthropology. And so in my intro class, students are tasked, and they have been for many, many years now, I think I'm on my seventh year of doing this, where they make their own languages. So that was how I began um, my interest in conlangs and um, developed from there. So mm-hmm. where did you first get the idea of having students create a language, especially if it's been going on for seven years? That seems a little surprising to me. <laughs> uh, so it started, the textbook I used is by a woman named Harriet Ottenheimer. And one of the assignments in her book is to develop languages over the course of the term. And um, so I modified her assignment and uh, it spun off from there. I've changed it a few times. The first time she suggests people do it in groups. 
that never works. Um, so now I did that the first semester I taught it or maybe two semesters and people just bought so much that I had to stop doing that. So now they're allowed to do it individually or in pairs or if they take a solemn vow and I literally make them make a solemn vow, they can do it in a trio and that's the max I will allow. Yeah. We, we, we have found, I think it's been found in, uh, sort of the conline community that collaborative projects often go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Unless there's the there's a couple places where there's there's a couple, some some structure to it where everybody's doing their own language basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a Fiat Lingua article about that um, a little while ago from 2012. There Shannon. was. There was. Yeah. And it's nice to know that people who've never conlanged before, you try to get them together and they can't get along either. No. Yeah. <laughs> that, that reassures me a little that it's not peculiar to. Long-time conlangers, but anyone who wants to do this becomes obsessed with how the definite article or how definiteness is marked, for example. Yeah. People will come to blows over that. Students in general um, often don't like group projects. So if you can minimize that for people, then at least that's what I found. Everyone always complains. Oh, group project. I don't want to do that. So, yeah. But some universities require that you have some group project in them. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, so I guess my other research, too, I should mention, uh, you mentioned it briefly, is um, language revitalization. So that's the main um, section of research that I do. And I work with Indigenous communities in Canada and in Papua New Guinea doing various things. Some of them are sort of related to creating things for language. So in Papua New Guinea, I've helped develop an alphabet for a language that didn't have one before. I provided suggestions to the community and they chose their symbols. Um, yeah, so I've been doing language revitalization work since my PhD uh, and before that a little bit. And um, yeah, and then I also wrote a paper about after I taught um, this course on new languages, pigeons and creoles and created languages, that's the choice that I made instead of conlang at that time. Yeah. Then I uh, uh, wrote a paper about Navi and Klingon communities and how they were gaining a lot of media attention and they use IT in very interesting ways and what endangered language communities could learn from that. So how and did that... That notion come to you? Was it just seeing things in the news and you're like, well, that's interesting. I wonder how that might be, you know, what might be learnable from that for revitalization efforts or how did this come to your mind? Yeah, partially from media stories. There was one really exaggerated case of, I think it was from New Zealand, an article that said 12,000 individuals learning not be in New Zealand. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. How do they get so many people? And I, I realize now it's a hugely exaggerated number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was also around the time I was in the course, uh, a call for papers from the journal Current Issues in Language Planning, which was looking at how media and uh, IT were used in language planning. And I was thinking so much because I was teaching the course for the first time, the fourth year course on new languages, about that. Um, so I just started thinking about it more, and that's how it developed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to th- really thousand, ten, fifteen thousand, twelve thousand people in New Zealand. Yeah, that's what the article said. But that's, I, where I, on earth did that number come from? <laughs> I don't know. I never sourced that one out. Some yeah. of the articles were rather random. You, so. You'd you'd almost have to think about like how were you even counting them, and <laughs> to what extent were they actually learning it? Absolutely, mm-hmm. I think it might have been downloads of the dictionary or people who visited Learn the V website, right? So, Which is yeah. <laughs> very poor yeah. proxy. Years yeah. and years ago, the the local well, now uh, national sort of humor um, newspaper, um, The Onion, um, mm-hmm. had an article claiming that there were now more Klingon speakers than Navajo. Yes, 
If they picked almost any other Native American language, it might almost have been plausible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But uh, not true. for Navajo. No. <laughs> um, and since then, I've said to people that um, it, one of the things that I'm really fascinated is the fact that speakers do develop out of nothing, right? So new languages are developed and people start speaking them. And that's what a lot of really endangered language communities are trying to do. The community I work with in Northern BC, there are three fluent elders left in that community. Yeah. So they are really trying to start from basics again, from mother tongue speakers and, and after school programs. Yeah. I I wonder about, it, it, it does seem like it would have some cross, so, some cross, you know, sorry, I can't talk right now. <laughs> it, it does, it does seem like it would have some, some things to teach to endangered language communities. The only thing I would think about is like in the, in the endangered language communities or in the revitalization efforts, you're often thinking about like, what's the like ethnic community connected to this language? And yeah. often there's, there's all sorts of um, from what I've been reading, I don't have the personal experience that you have, but from what I've been reading, there's often like a tug of war within the community over who is more, you know, who is more Ojibwe than the other or whatever. Yeah, you know, that and, does happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. I was just to say, it seems to me that for something like not V in particular, probably more than any other language that's come along, part of the motivation is... More than just learning a language, it is a sense of identifying with a particular community that has organized around the sort of uh, not terribly subtle moral message of the Avatar movie about both resource use and um, indigenous rights, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what drives it more than anything. It's not something intrinsic to the language. You have to have people that are highly motivated by the ethos of the film. And how much of that is do you see as fundamental to sort of trying to take lessons from conlang communities and applying them to um, revitalization efforts? Because if you've if you've grown up your entire life speaking English and then you have to learn something like Ojibwe or Huba, <laughs> you have a big task ahead of you. Right. I, but so many people say that it's part of who their identity is. Even if they didn't grow up speaking the language, they identify with that language because mm-hmm. m- most communities have had a few elders. There are some that are sleeping languages. I, I don't use the word extinct because I'm more optimistic than that. Um, <laughs> I've had many different debates with people. And there are, like the Miami community, there's a great article by um, a guy named uh, Wesley Leonard who says, when is a language not extinct? When its speakers tell you it's not. <laughs> so <laughs> because they often say that when the last mother tongue speaker dies, that's when a language is extinct. But I don't use that term. So if you unless it was sleeping for generations and you didn't hear it, people do identify with it and so there are even those um like how to say hello or thank you those little phrases right so then that can be built on so identifying with the language is really important um the article that i wrote about what communities could learn endangered language communities was more about how to use media to get more attention and get funds because often it's a competitive race to whose language is more endangered right and Mm -hmm. how do we those funds and also how to use IT because so many communities now, especially well, Canada and the US, um, people are moving off reserve lands or moving away from their home communities to get jobs and go to school. So how do we keep connection? And sure. IT is a great way to do that with YouTube videos and Facebook groups. Now I'm on one for Cree and for Clinkit. Um, so there's different ways that uh, created language communities such as the Navi um, and Klingon communities were already using media mm-hmm. so that they can use those as a model. 
Yeah, for me, one of the surest signs that Navajo was still pretty strong was when I noticed um, a few teenagers, a few Navajo teenagers had um, MySpace pages Oh yeah, in Navajo. Right. There's a great Anishinaabe one, or Ojibwe if you prefer, but uh, a great Facebook group in Anishinaabe that's running by uh, Margaret Nuri runs it out of Michigan. So yeah, we looked at that one um, last term when I was teaching a course on endangered languages. Mm. Yeah. Um, can I just comment on your community comment about Navi yeah. and how people are? Uh, I just finished writing a paper because one of the, it's been a while. I, I got the initial 10 questions out about who was speaking sure. Navi. Um, and then there were so much more in the last, there were 20 questions and I haven't had a chance to finish all of that because there was so much that Navi speakers were telling me. Oh yeah. It was overwhelming. And I, it, this is my research project that was unfunded at the time. So <laughs> I focused on my funded ones, which were more my indigenous language revitalization communities. Um, but I finally finished this paper because one of the ones I found most interesting was the conflict people had when I asked them, is there a Navi culture or community? And people had such diverse answers. Uh, I found it fascinating. So a lot of people agreed there was a community, but not always that the ethic of Avatar was the driving force behind that. Mm-hmm. Though what people said made it feel like a community was being able to speak the languages. So I asked, do you feel there's a culture or community, depending on which version you answered? And then... Um, do you feel you're a part of it? And people said, no, I don't speak the language well enough. I'm not a part of it. So oh. language is really a community-based function. And other people talked about, no, it's only fictional. Um, yes, we have a subculture culture, but not a, a real culture. So, so diverse, so fascinating. So I just finished that paper. Well, One thing I... To seeing that paper. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. That, that might be interesting if you compared that to like Esperanto. They're doing a similar survey there because they have, well, William, William knows more about this than me, but Esperanto has, uh, you know, longer established and it has built up a little bit of a culture around itself. Uh, quite oh, a lot absolutely. of the culture in some, yeah. some Yeah. And some people argued for a culture for Navi too, um, about different terms of address that have developed and politeness rules and socialization rules. So other people were arguing that, but they're just, so diverse. I Yeah, that was the hardest one to read and analyze. Yeah, with any invented language associated with a property like this, and it's true for Klingon, you have some people who are learning the language just because it's an interesting intellectual exercise. So you'll have this very small core of people who learn these languages intensely, and they sort of exist on their own plane. And then we have right. everyone else who uses the language a little bit um, as sort of a shibboleth, right? It's a, it's a marker of in-group membership. Right. It was interesting, though, because when I asked people, why are you learning Navi? People, the number one response, 109 out of 293, said because it's a cool or fascinating or beautiful language. Uh-huh. And it wasn't about Avatar. So that was always really interesting to me, too. And I think Paul Fromer has always really loved that answer. Uh, one of the other main answers is that it sounds pretty, oh. uh, which is also fascinating to him. I've heard some of the things about, like, Klingon and stuff. There, there seems to be some people who are who have the who really liked the idea of learning, learning a fictional language. And mm-hmm. those people not are not necessarily fans of the work that the language comes from. Right. Yeah. And that's where this survey developed from. There was a survey by a Swedish linguistic student named Jens Wahlgren. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, done in 2004. And I took a lot of the questions from him. I developed more or changed them uh, based on the, the newness of Navi. 
But um, yeah, it was interesting because he his thesis says people are learning the language, the advanced speakers, because they love the language, not because they're Star Trek fans. Yeah, Klingon. Uh-huh. It's harder to do work on Klingon because I think of all of the invented languages to come down the pike through a movie, Navi mm-hmm. is by far the biggest ever. Yes. Um, I think it even blows away like the Elvish Tolkien fans, just in terms of sheer numbers of people trying to to use the language. Absolutely. I suppose that's good. They came just in time to do research on with decent um, numbers for sample sizes. <laughs> good point. Yes. Yeah. And I, I didn't expect the numbers that I got. I thought I'd have about 25, just like Walgren did in 2004 and yeah. 293. And some people um, didn't know any Navi yet. They were just, they thought they were a member of the community, but they hadn't learned any language. And it was all very fascinating. Yeah. Some people, as, as I recall, the the survey itself got translated into a bunch of languages other than English because you had a, a good base of people who didn't know English or enough Navi to answer a survey in Navi. Right. Um, there were actually uh, eight translations counting English. Wow. So there was um, English, German, Russian, Ukrainian. Nobody filled in the Ukrainian one, though, because everybody knew enough Russian or English. Yeah, right. um, Hungarian, French, Italian, and Navi itself. Did all of oh. those get used? Except for the Ukrainian one. All of the other one had answers. Um, Italian was late. Oh, did I mention French? French was also okay. in there. Um, Italian came on late. It was almost near the end of the survey. So we only got five, I think, in Italian. That's still uh, good. All the rest. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. The biggest one was Russian. I think that was 34. And then German had 23. Uh, Navi itself had 10. Although some people, I let people answer that one twice. Uh-huh. So if you had answered in English, you could try in Navi as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but only three of those people of the 10 only answered in Navi. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. So there, all- there are people who took a survey in Navi. Yeah. Yes, 10 of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I got Br- <laughs> Britain ans- uh, translated that one for me. So all of my translations were done, Britain Watkins, were done via volunteers because I don't speak any of those languages. Um, I can understand French to some extent, but... Sure. I'm not I'm Canadian. We all do to some extent, but um, I'm not good at writing anything in French. Uh, so all of the translations were done by volunteers from the community. And that to me is what makes the Navi community is this generous sense of community. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That must add interesting complications to your data too. <laughs> yeah, it does. Because after I got the answers, all of them needed to volunteer to translate it. To right. It. Right. And there's the thing and of ended up not, and I had to get find students here. I had a student finish my French translation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, who's been a student of mine for other projects now. So yeah. Wow, I'm just going to sit here and pause and think about that. I mean, I knew that was involved, but the sheer numbers of it didn't. I didn't appreciate that right fully. Wow. Yeah. Well, if we could move a little bit on the to the um, the the course actually that you taught. Sure. I'm going off of. The, the Fiat Lingua paper that you wrote uh, about that. And um, it mentions that you you included work on uh, proxemics, which that's not a familiar term to me. Okay. Um, and nonverbal gestures. Proxemics, it sounds like it's use of space. It is, yes. So okay. prox being near um, yeah. from Latin and then emics. Um, Kenneth Pike uh, developed terms that anthropologists use a lot, emic and edic. But it comes from phonemics, right? So an insider's view of the language or culture. Um, so the insider's view of space is generally the idea of proxemics. 
and how we use, we have different bubbles of space when we communicate. So um, the term was developed by, proxemics was developed by a man named Edward Hall in the 1960s. And he was actually an anthropologist who worked with um, the U.S. Army, who looked at differences in space and how that caused miscommunications. Um, and then he related it to animal territoriality as well. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And what do you think is like the benefit of doing sort of that proxemics and the this nonverbal communication as well, and along with the the language for the purposes of your class and maybe for your artistic purposes of con language? Because I think what we find in the conlang community is a lot of people just focus on language itself and are not as cons- do not concern themselves as much with you know the the nonverbal uh, communication. Right. I think that's a shame <laughs> because <laughs> proxemics is so um, ingrained in us. When we talk to other people, where do you look at them? Do you not? So part of it is eye contact. Part of it is how much space do you use? When you greet people, do you kiss them on cheeks? And that's a part of the larger sense of communication, right? So for my students, we, as anthropologists, we use Del Heim's idea of communicative competence. And that's not just knowing the language, the grammatical pieces of it, which is more Chomsky's idea of linguistic competence, but it's also how do we know who to talk to or when to talk to them or where or all of those social features. So proxemics is very much related to that social competence and, and nonverbal gestures. So a lot of these are, I, I put them in because they're pieces we learn in class and to reinforce the concepts, that's why I put in different pieces. So they always really like this section though, they, because the IPA just tends to boggle their minds. <laughs> <laughs> So when they can get to nonverbal gestures, you know, that's that's an exciting thing for them. Sure. I mean, it's, it is interesting to think about because every single Navajo textbook I've ever seen says, do not point at people with your fingers because it's right. rude. Yeah. And yet all of us language inventors in general don't include this sort of information. Um, yeah. Yeah, you do. You do learn things like that, learning a language like, um, you know, I was taught learning Chinese that you never... You never beckon someone with your palm facing up. You do it with your palm facing down. Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. What about, I hadn't thought about that. What you learn in language classes too, right? Yeah. yeah. So did you come up with some proxemics and nonverbal stuff for, um, uh, Kryptonian? Not, I, it would have been, it would have been tough to do because. Right. An, an audience has certain expectations. And while you could come up with this stuff, using it in the movie might be awkward for people. And and another thing that I, I recall David Pearson mentioning is like, unless the sort of language creator is on the set all the time, they can't really coach the actors sure. to right. actually accurately portray those, those yeah. qualities, right? Yes. Um, and so I didn't. And I, I did another interview with um, Darren Doyle, who runs a Kryptonian info site, and mm-hmm. he'd been developing his own Kryptonian um, based on the symbol seen in Smallville. Sure. And um, in there, he asked me that, too. And I said, no, I didn't. And it would be really hard, just like you mentioned, to direct the actors if you're not on set. But even, you know, trying me trying to tell Russell Crowe, no, I'm sorry, your bubble is too small. Can you make it now? <laughs> right? Like, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> Everybody has their own, you know, those level of actors have their own understanding of how they're going to do the character. Sure. And so I think that part, for those types of languages, ones that are more media driven, that will be a real challenge. But I think other ones could develop sure. that as part of it as well. Well, I've been lucky because the video game that I'm developing the language for, which I'm still not allowed to talk about, um, <laughs> but I can't say this much, I did come up with 
not so much proxemics, but definitely gestural stuff. Um, right. I don't know how much it's going to be used by the animators. And then that's an easier thing in that situation where you're not dealing with actual human beings on a set where right. just the visual language of movies have their own expectations in addition to mm -hmm. cultural stuff. Um, people in my class who have come up with some really fascinating ones because we read this article, one of our our uh, assigned readings, I was going to say acquired readings, assigned <laughs> readings are, um, it's an article by Hickey and Thompson, I think are the names, um, and Ottenheimer includes it in her textbook package about uh, cowboys and how their proxemic systems are based on their horses. And so it was a really interesting article that almost sounds stereotypical, but she's asked around and everyone seems to agree that yes, cowboys do use their horses to set their bubbles. So they like to be more side by side. That feels less intimate to them than face to face because they like to have the horse head in front and, um, and how that all affects and, and the, yeah. So my students have taken that and then done things like, um, if they have camels they ride, they'll base it on their camels or, Whatever it is, um, one was based on the gym. They often have these very silly settings for their languages. So the gym or the mall or so, you know, shopping bags or dumbbells or whatever it is. <laughs> that's, all based on. So that's always really fun to think about, too. Don't get too close to her shopping. Yes, right. Um, I mean, even if that's silly, from a pedagogical standpoint, that's as good as anything to help people oh. just sort of think through the implications of whatever it is. Right. Huh. It does seem to help them. When people get that, when I say, well, why don't you use jungle cats? Because you've got so many words for jungle cats. You know, maybe this is the size of a small jungle cat. And they get really excited about that. Keeping with uh, your your sort of uh, language creation assignment in your class, mm -hmm. one thing I noticed in your paper that I kind of want to play a little bit devil's advocate and get, uh, get into your thoughts about this <laughs> is um, so there seems to be there will seem to be sort of uh, an idea of your stu you you notice that your students most of them did not think too much about the culture and the world building elements with phonology except the one guy who was who was making a language for foxes right which obviously if you if you create a language for a creature that has different physiology that's 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 a different thing they need different phonetics but a lot of students were saying you said a lot of students felt the need to consider culture when they're doing morphology and syntax. Now, yeah. I, I, I understand a lot, a lot of morphological categories would possibly be affected by culture, especially things like gender categories or honorifics or stuff. But like, I don't think of culture when I'm deciding between SVO and VSO or something like that. Right. Um, so one example I can think of for that is topicalization in English, right? So when we are making something the topic of a conversation or the, the focus of it, we will front things. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of different ways that people use syntax to show different emphasis for things. So um, putting like, if we say yesterday, I went to the store instead of I went to the store yesterday, right? It's emphasizing the time aspect of it. So people look at that. The other thing they tend to think about is, well, and Marco Krant has said this, that he wanted Klingon to be as alien as possible, which is why he chose object, object, verb, subject. So there are other people who've looked at that idea as well. There's my students in my morphology, syntax, and semantics course, too. They just analyzed Malagasy, for example, the language from Madagascar. <laughs> yeah. And in Malagasy, um, there's a lot of people are trying to be indefinite a lot of the time. So how do you use the syntax to help you with that? So passive verb constructions and using 
um, someone. So there are lots of things that are actually tied. And part of that is because you will get shame if you're being too definite about things and then those things go wrong. So you want your, your sentences to be indefinitely structured to some extent. Uh, so there are other things that we can see. I've heard people talk about Cree and verbs being really important. So that's part of why we talk about the syntax and the culture aspect of it. Hmm. So the use of syntax to manage the usual, and we've talked about this in ways to give commands and politeness stuff. We've had previous sure. episodes about this. I hadn't realized Malagasy was, I knew Malagasy had all sorts of um, valency changing operations. Oh, okay. All sorts of stuff. So this, that's interesting that it's used in the surface of, in the, in the service of sort of cultural expectations about what you can commit to when you're speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was an, it's an interesting paper. Um, it's an old one, but from 1979 by Keenan and Ox on, uh, Malagasy, becoming a competent speaker of Malagasy. So knowing what kinds of things you're allowed to say and who you can address and things oh, like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else I can tell you about this. Well, the other thing about syntax in this assignment is even though I tell students they can change it. And another thing people might do is, like instead of the big blue house, house big blue, right? They might change their noun phrases and the adjective sure. orders. But I would say every time I teach this course, every time I do this assignment, two thirds of the students, at least, if not more, cannot break away from subject verb object. Some yeah. of them will say they try to, but it's too hard for them. So yeah. it goes back to this idea of um, obligatory categories and, and what we're used to. And I know I found that learning other languages, sometimes with my Cree sentences, I would try to make it subject, verb, object, and it doesn't need to be. <laughs> so when we learn other languages, we tend to do what we're used to. And so that's something that they realize, like, oh, I can't get out of this mindset. <laughs> um, just, just just for clarification, what is, like, the default order, order in Cree, or is there a default? Um, because it's polysynthetic, or depending if you like that term or not, or highly agglutinative, um, subjects are embedded into verbs. And yeah. so it would be subject and verb together and then object tends to be. So the verb comes at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So, but then I would try to make these long embedded sentences with different verbs. And Cree verbs are so interesting. There's transitive animate, transitive inanimate, intransitive animate, intransitive inanimate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which pervades across the entire language family. Yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, the Algonquian verbs are crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're quite an edifice. Yes. Yeah. And I've learned Cree in various, I'm from Manitoba, so I originally learned Swampy Cree. Um, and then I moved to Alberta to do my PhD and I took classes in Plains Cree. And then where I worked was a version of Plains Cree. It was Northern Plains Cree. So <laughs> different endings, different sounds, different dialectical differences. So yeah, adjusting for all that too. Are they mutually comprehensible or are they just getting all, all getting called Cree because someone thought so? Um, actually, I have a paper coming out about that. Um, <laughs> they are they are mutually comprehensible, although there are some things that aren't people. It depends on people's attitudes about whether or not they want to agree that they understand people in Quebec. Okay. Uh, so it's <laughs> lots of different things. Um, but yeah, it depends how far, like, because Cree covers such a large Huge. space, right? Yeah. It goes from Quebec to British Columbia. Um, things change a lot from edge to edge. In the middle, things tend to be easier to switch but yeah I, I have a feeling it's always weird trying to get to the bottom of dialect continuums and stuff like yes. that, that perceptions and everything there's a professor here uh Rand valentine who works yeah. on ojibwe yes. he told us that there is a dialect of ojibwe where that you know the you talk to the speakers 
the speakers will insist that they speak Cree. Yeah, OG Cree. Yeah. My my master supervisor was Lisa Valentine, who is Lisa Phillips now, but Rand's ex-wife. So, Uh yeah, (laughs) I know a lot about OG Cree. And I think I've met Rand before, too. How many Algonquin languages end up in British Columbia? Yeah, it, that one's rare, and it's only in Fort St. John. So there, yeah, there's a um, an Ojibwe group of speakers as well that migrated out here. Okay. Um, and then, of course, we have Majif as well, um, which is the Métis language, uh, which is a blend of, okay. well, Cree yeah. and French. Yeah. But uh, so the, some of the speakers out here speak a version of Majif or uh, more like a Cree, really. I thought that was much further east. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then mostly you're dealing with presumably... Um, what can I, Athabascan languages where you are now? Um, well, cl- I work with Clinkit in Clinkit, northern, okay. um, northern British Columbia, and which do is. Do we think that's Athabascan this week? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, part of the larger Nadane language group, right? Okay. But separate. Um, and also where I am is, uh, Interior Salish. So oh. Okanagan. Ooh. Um, and, um, Shipwemek or Shushwa. Salish yeah. languages. Those are fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating. Right, but that's not what the topic of, we're not talking I about know. the Salish language. Not talk, totally. <laughs> so, um, well, George, go ahead. Uh, you go. What? I was just going to switch over to, um, uh, Kryptonian, unless you had other questions. Actually, that was just what I was about to do. Okay, it's like, perfect. let's, let's, um, let's, uh, switch over and talk about your work with, uh, Kryptonian. First of all, how did you, how did you get into this? this particular job right um well interestingly it wasn't a blind decision based on producers which i've heard other people mention on your podcast (laughs) um but i was involved with my research on navi and so there had been lots of media attention about that in the summer of 2011 and um uh, Alex Dell, who was production designer for Man of Steel, was in Toronto and picked up a copy of the Globe and Mail. And we had really good placement. The story about Navi was on the uh, front cover page, actually. And then the inside, there was a photo of some, um, I think it was Natiri and somebody else on the, the front. And then it was the inside article. So Alex saw that and knew that I was doing that. And so he contacted me and asked, he thought, well, you know, we've left this out. We've been building Krypton and we don't have a language. And they had some idea about writing and glyphs, but they they were lacking that detail. And Alex McDowell was really well known for attention to detail in the worlds that he built. Um, he's won awards for that, for uh, Minority Report and other things. And so he invited me to come and that's how I got there. Oh. So... Not totally blindly. Picked. Yeah. <laughs> so, in sort of broad terms, you don't have to go into the nitty gritty. What was your your process like? Right? Did, did they come to you say, "Here's what's going on," and you agreed? They hired you, and then suddenly you have you know two weeks to come up with everything. Or what was the right. process like? Um, it was pretty quick. So I was flown to Vancouver. I was really skeptical, actually, that uh, it really was going to happen. I was surprised anyone would get a hold of me. But um, so they flew me in and then told me the story of what was happening. I've mentioned in other interviews, because Superman is such a highly um, canonical story, they wanted to keep the reboot ideas very secretive. And so there was a locked room with all the art all the costume ideas, all the storyboards, everything locked in this central room that everybody called the fortress. So I was <laughs> invited into the fortress um, early on and got to meet with Alex and uh, the graphic designer I work with, Kirsten Franson. And um, 
some of the other people who were involved, the arts department, I think Helen Jarvis was there maybe that day. I met her shortly after. Um, so we walked through and I heard the whole story and they said, well, you know, we really want to put more writing. That's one of our ideas. Writing is all over the walls, but we want something now to go behind that writing. So it makes sense. So fans can look at it and say, oh yeah, there, there is coherency here. I can figure things out. So, um, I said, well, here are some things you can do. They, they had the symbols, some of them, the logographic symbols for the, the costume shields. Obviously, the S is no longer S. It's, right. If you've seen the movie, you should know that it means hope. Um, and so they wanted to know, should we develop more of those? What way would be a good way to go? So um, one of my suggestions was that will take a lot of time if you're going to do iconographic or logographic writing. So maybe you could do it in a um, more of a phonological sense. So we, I suggested syllabic writing. So there's consonant vowel patterns that are similar to the logographic. And that's where it started. So then from there, we had to figure out the sounds that were in the canon of Superman. Um, so they had compiled lists of words that had different sounds. And I picked um, what they would look like and started doing IPA charts for those. And yeah, so it was pretty quick from there on. I have to, I have to think, you know, Sort of, uh, even though no one really probably did that much, you know, Kryptonian in the story, just, just the decades worth of names must have been mm. a lot of material to start with. Yes. Um, so that, and that was what I started with was names. So a huge list of names and then thinking about, okay, well, how do people say these commonly? Because obviously, um, if they were written, with an English idea in mind, like Faora, are we are we saying it Fora or what? What is the A O diphthong there, and how is sure. that being pronounced? So I had to regularize all of those spelling differences. Um, is oo is the letter U oo or is it uh or what's going on there? So yeah, there was a lot to work with. How many vowels did you end up with? Um, there are there's uh one two three four five. I'm pretty sure. Oh, and so. then a couple of diphthongs, not very many. Okay. Because there weren't that many. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes life easier. Was, yeah, was sort of pronounceability any kind of a concern for you? Because I, I understand there's no, there's no dialogue in Kryptonian movie, right? No, there is no dialogue. Although people got really excited, um, as I was working, I, I did it quite quickly. It was luckily it was summer, so I didn't have my classes in the way. Um, and so they got excited about that and people did ask me to do lines for various scenes that were being filmed and I'm, I wasn't on set, so I'm not sure if the actors ever said them in Kryptonian and they filled them in that way or they presented it to the actors and they said, no way am I doing that? I didn't sign on for that. So I'm not sure whatever happened with that, but it was somewhat of a consideration because I didn't want to have things that were very challenging for people who are mother tongue English speakers. Yeah. Um, so most of the sounds are found within English. There's one, um, the uh, voiced glottal fricative um, oh. is not, <laughs> but that one appears, well, it's somewhat used. And then the um, velar nasal comes at the beginning of words, which is often a little bit of a challenge for English speakers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. remember, yeah, even Paul Fromer mentioning this. He thought people would have most trouble with the ejectives in not V, but really for English speakers, starting a word with a velar nasal, nasal um, yeah, was much more challenging, which was an, hmm. it's an interesting um, result. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think I had heard Paul say that, but I put them in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that I saw seen something, some transcription with Kryptonian where you had both an approximate R and a trill R. Maybe I'm 
No, there's no Trildar. Um, okay. Oh, it might have been that it was uh, written the wrong way in whatever. So it's oh. R. And then sometimes when I was doing translations to help develop the font, they couldn't understand the IPA. And so I had to turn it the other way. So sometimes things got <laughs> missed in the editing between those. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So so it is an approximate R, which a lot, a lot of times you see people just sticking with the tap because it's... It's a foreign R sound and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's like a signal, but it's interesting to see that you chose the more Englishy R, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and that probably comes from the phonology of the names, right? Like Kryptonian is not, when we say Kryptonian, it's more of the approximate R. It's not a flap in that KR, you know, because it was based on that English idea, you know, spelling. Yeah. yeah. People sure. were pronouncing it. So we really had to stick with that. Otherwise, having a K flap sound would have really changed how people thought of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So can you give us a quick typological overview of Kryptonians? Sure. Um, <laughs> a few different things uh, that, well, like I said about the sounds, there's a lot of English sounds. Um, morphologically, it's agglutinative, although um, it's isolating in the tenses. So the past and present have individual words. Um, or it's so not past, past and future, sorry. Present uh, is the infinitive form. The third person present is the infinitive form. Um, it's subject, object, verb. Um, what else can I tell you? There are inclusive and exclusive pronouns. There are neutral pronouns as well as masculine and feminine pronouns. Um, what else? I don't know. I'm trying to think of other things that you may want to know about it. So there's masculine, feminine pronouns and neutral pronouns was the is there or did you have the concept of an earlier kryptonian with with more gender or um no part of it one of the ideas the reason there's a neutral pronoun was because they have so much of their technology is biologically incorporated and so a lot of the robots have biological components to them and they're all based on um, Alex McDowell has talked about this in the design of Krypton. There's not a single straight line on Krypton. It's all based on things in nature. And so there was more of this. Originally, we had this concept of earlier kind of blended forms of um, like biological and machine and how we have gender based on that idea from an earlier form. So there was that, but not masculine, feminine per se. Oh, interesting. So how big is the vocabulary? Uh, there are about 300 words. Yeah. Um, in Kryptonian, because there was no spoken dialogue, there was no need for developing more. I know um, yeah. Navi and Klingon had larger ones to begin with, uh, as did Dothraki and various other ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sentences are limited, like the vocabulary that was developed, because a lot of it was meant to be on the council chambers or important statements about Krypton's history. A lot of it is very poetic, and there are words that, um, like industriousness and purity and, and things like that. <laughs> You wouldn't typically develop those early on in a language, I'm thinking. Um, at least none of my students ever do. And right. uh, yeah, so there was a lot of um, interesting word choices in the vocabulary. So when somebody asked me for a very simple everyday translation now, it's hard to do that. Um, we used Kryptonian as a language model for um, a game my students were learning in my endangered language class called Where Are Your Keys, which is a common, I don't know if you've heard of it, it combines American Sign Language um, at, to learn indigenous languages so it's a language revitalization tool 
And so we wanted to test it. And so I taught them some Kryptonian, but there are words like rock and I don't have a word for rock. (laughs) Small mountain. And then there was the word for stick, but I don't have a word for stick. I have a word for branch. So I need to, there was uh, some modification that needed to occur. Yeah, that's that's an interesting trick because I would feel great anxiety about a word like industriousness mm-hmm. um, without some basic vocabulary hiding underneath it. Right. Oh, and I did do that. There, There is, um, but it's, yeah, so purity was another one of those where, you know, do I come up with pure or like what? what's the order there? Because thinking in English, there is some underlying, you know, structure. Sure. sure. But, yeah, there is, that is in there, but... It was um, a challenge to have those very complex words and also very large embedded sentences like and calling to people like vocative cases and, oh, Sivana, goddess of, you know, whatever. So, (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. When you have to have like, you know, an embedded relative clause in indirect speech before you can ask a question. Right. Yeah. In a way, it's it's almost like you had to go at vocabulary in a sort of and at the whole language in sort of a backwards direction because like <laughs> if i'm making a language i'm not going to make a ton of names right at the start of it because those are things that you might would want to derive as well that's a really good point and so i had all, only names to begin with pretty much um and so yeah a lot of it was backwards like this i came in they were already filming sets were built like this was a last minute decision on their part. So wow. you know, I, there wow. was no, uh, um, yeah, it was very, it was very quick. There wasn't the two year process building up to it. Right. So it was, we need this now. How do we, how do we make this? And then because everybody really loved what I was doing, what Kirsten Branson was doing with the writing of it, they got super excited and wanted to put it on more things. So then there was writing on spaceships and on weapons and, you know, so develop from there. And that makes sense. That's always bugged me about some science fiction films where you get an invented language, like, for example, Klingon. And it's not ever, I mean, it gets used in the movies in that ghastly font that they have, but, uh, oh, yeah. but it, you don't see it everywhere. Whereas in our, in human high tech cultures, there's writing on everything. Yeah. There's advertising, right. um, signs, don't press this button here, you know, all of this stuff. Um, is, Mind, yeah. That was one of the ones we developed. Mind the gap is on the edge. Sort of like a version of mind the gap, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which was a little in joke for that. We, I really wanted a robot voice saying that phrase, but yeah, wow, <laughs> that would that would be that would have been interesting. Yeah, the, the one bit of Kryptonian ends up being a robot telling you to find uh, the gap. Don't plummet to your death. Right. <laughs> so, the literal translation is: "You're walking. Think about it." Oh, England, good. So. Good. Although. William, I, I'm sure that the Klingons don't deal too much with warning signs. That's probably true. That's probably true. <laughs> Very true. And but, there was the, the number system was also written. Um, that was one of the first things they developed was this number. Um, and because their number system was a rotation of a similar symbol in different ways for one, two, three, four, five, up to ten. Um, so that was why the alphabet also mimic that idea too because they had already done the numbers so we had to build from there too um yeah that's quite a constraint can you talk Mm. a little bit about um your inspiration for the writing system like visually i i look at it and i i think of something like devanagari because just just purely because of the 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 top bar there right um like what i i understand they had some visuals already 
worked out what but what other sort of inspirations for the visuals and for the the system itself if you can explain that yeah absolutely so uh, one of them was actually Cree so when I first was trying to think of well it's the syllabic writing system I know the best sure I also lived in Japan so I know I, a little bit of katakana more than hiragana um, but Cree I can still read the syllabic system and so um, I showed them how Cree works and how we can have consonant and vowel combinations that rotate depending on the direction of the vowel and so that was the inspiration for how it would rotate. Although Cree, it has eight vowels. There are four, like E, A, A, and O. Um, and then, but then you can have long vowels as well. So this one had five, right? So we had to have the diphthong and then we had to have, uh, so it was a little bit trickier having the rotation because it wasn't an equal system per se. So yeah. So you'll see hooks on the top of some of the letters and that means it's either um, A or A or whatever it is. Hmm. Even more like David. Oh, that's an interesting mix to go from sort of syllabic rotations, but then, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of any other questions. I'm, I'm sorry I've been so quiet. It's just I'm, I'm, you know, it's like a playground here. I'm just really soaking <laughs> everything in. And uh, it's, it's fantastic and brilliant. So. Mike, do you have any questions? <laughs> <sighs> Most of them, I feel like, are just kind of scattershot things. On, like, the writing system is, is fantastic, and I mean, I'd love to... to ask questions till the cows come home. But um, I, I'm i just happy to hear anything that there is to know about this because there's, you know, with conlanging, there's such, there's such an, like a, almost an explosion, it seems like, in, they're using it in, you know, like you said, in media. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really grown from where it used to just be, you know, once in a while you'll make up a, like some gibberish, but now it's growing into a very organic, very evolving sort of system thing that people are using. And it's great to hear it, actually someone who's doing it. Um, it was interesting because a lot of, for the production people that I was working with, none of them had been on a show in any way that had a created language before. So for them, they were super excited that this was happening, right? They, they didn't know necessarily, they knew about, you know, Klingon and Navi and Tolkien's mm-hmm. languages, but they hadn't ever worked on it themselves. So they were excited to see it happening. And they were always like, translate my name for me and put this <laughs> <laughs> so, stuff like that. So uh, especially the guild system, because there's an artist guild and a lot of them were the artists. I worked mostly with the art department because it was about the set and the sure, art sure. behind it. Um, so there's a, a the artist guild logograph and, and things like that. Oh, that's funny. That's good. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. About the growth of this in movies and certainly a lot all over TV um, and soon video games, a little bit better than just gibberish invented. Um, I'm surprised that it didn't occur to them to ask for you sooner. Like that this was an afterthought. Given movies like Avatar and TV shows like Game of Thrones, which are huge. I I would be curious to know when someone said, hey, (laughs) we should have a language. (laughs) It was quite late and it was basically they were stuck because um, they wanted to write more, but they didn't want it to be gibberish and they didn't really know what to do. And so I think that was why when they saw the article and were reminded that people are doing stuff, sure. you know, with Navi and that was really what sparked it. So, yeah, it was quite late. And I mean, the Kryptonians, the, the section on Krypton is quite short. Yeah. in terms of the entire movie. But there was so much thought put into that section, and you really see that on the special features of how much about the costumes and the world-building that went on there. And so it was just something they hadn't thought of. But they will now, I'm pretty sure. Anybody of, any of those people will be thinking of that in future movies. I, I kind of wonder if it was an afterthought partly because... I don't know. I don't, 
I don't really know the Superman comics, but my my guess is that most of the time the culture and and of Krypton and stuff is not really a big factor. It's mostly about Superman and his own his own powers and his own stories. And uh, so maybe that's part of the thing is they decided had at some point made a decision that this movie had to have more Krypton in it. But yeah. this is my speculation. So <laughs> I would agree. And, um, and it has never in the other versions, there's never been a language. There's been transliterators, right? Where there's the symbols and then they mean a and B and yeah. whatever. There's been two different versions of that, but it was never a focus in the comics or on the other movies or TV shows. So I remember yeah. Smallville had some, I don't know, just, and I looked like I, I think it was just some gibberish in a crazy font. Yeah, it, and it was transliteration. I think um, Darren Doyle has developed his from there. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, he he really took it much further than they had done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when that happens. The same thing has happened with Vulcan, where you have some small tidbits, and then a fan grabs it and runs. Right. Mm-hmm. And I I knew he was when I first was called to come to the set. I looked to see what the history was. Um, but I, once I knew they wanted to do something totally different, I stopped looking at any of that because yeah. I didn't want it to influence me. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I was going to get asked about that. So you just sort of set aside all the previous things then. Right. Because they weren't using any of that. They didn't use any of the symbols and the story changed a lot. I mean, Lois Lane knows early on who Clark Kent is, right? So there's that the whole thing had changed. They wanted something new with the reboot, but respecting the old information right but yeah based on my somewhat obsessive watching of special features on dvds and blu-rays now i get the impression that the making of a movie with some producers and directors is very tidy and organized but in the vast majority of the case is this sort of vaguely orchestrated chaos yeah (laughs) and the decisions and the decisions that are quite profound on the end result happen quite late in the game or that can happen sometimes yeah, I would. Well, in this case, my limited experience, I would say that's true as well. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that you know movies end up using you know, especially a bigger budget movie. You have thousands of creative people on board, and it's just going to be cat herding from <laughs> now until the movie comes out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wasn't involved in the. Her- I guess I was being herded. That yeah, yeah. Were, you were right? one of the cats. That's that's all. Yeah, yeah I'm just one of the cats running around. <laughs> but it was. Great. I mean, part of what I loved about being involved was that I did see things that were not related to what I was doing. I was in the ice tunnel, for example, and seeing things that weren't related to Krypton at all. And it was really fascinating to see how those things then also translated onto the screen. Uh, I can't think of any other questions that I have. No, I don't think so. Mike, Mike, do you no, I, don't, I can't think of any. I'm just, you know, like I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm in awe and awestruck and fantastically, I'm just peachy keen. <laughs> <laughs> Christine, do you have any like final notes you want to make or anything that you want to promote or anything? Um, anything I want to promote? Not necessarily. I will be teaching my, um, pigeons, creoles and creative languages class again in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so previously, we've had members of the Language Creation Society. Um, Don Boozer came in via Skype and Britton Watkins came in. So um, maybe be aware that I may be looking for people if you want to volunteer to come oh. in and talk about your own conlanging experiences, sure. uh, learning them or making them or whatever it is. 
um, yeah, that'll be running in the fall. So, yeah. Ah, that might be an interesting thing. Mm-hmm, yeah, that would be great. All right. I really enjoyed that. We also have a class hashtag that we use on Twitter, um, which is Ant474, which is the number of the course. And so we, we connected with a lot of people who are in the online world via that. So if you're on Twitter, you can participate in our conversations that way. Oh, interesting. Good. Mm-hmm. All right. Then I think we can wrap up the show. Great. So for all of you guys, uh, thank you very much, Christine, for being on the show. Uh, I, I'm glad that you put up with my terrible unprofessionalism at not being able to pronounce your name. In the <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, uh, so I'm just going to say happy conlanging. And that's happy the end. to all of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our Contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.